I saw a question the other day that really got me thinking. In what area of your life could you bring more light? Now that's deep. Hello, hello, folks. It's Shara Carruthers here, and you are listening to the Live Like You Love Yourself podcast. Thank you so much for showing up here to take a dive with us into some of life's tough questions. And so in what area of your life could you bring more light? And how do you, how does one even begin to answer a question like that? You know, I'm certainly finding these days that I'm being challenged and maybe we all are a little to gain some clarity around what I believe and what I know and what I don't know. It seems like current movements in the areas of things like social justice and gender diversity and equity and even psychology and yoga philosophy and practice are inviting us to take a good look at ourselves and to re-examine the ways that our culture shapes our knowing and our being. I've had some uncomfortable conversations lately around subjects that I know very little about. And I've had to contend with those dark areas of my own understanding and what it means to not even know they were there. And I've had to find the courage to listen. Because listening can bring light into those areas of our lives that we didn't even know needed it. And so I'm starting to believe that this question, in what area of your life could you bring more light It's one of those tough and juicy ones that we need to find the courage to ask ourselves every day with authentic curiosity and humility because there's so much we don't know about ourselves and so much that we can learn from each other and contribute to each other if we could find the courage to commit to bringing more light to those dark corners of our lives, whether they be biases or resentments or mysteries or self-limiting beliefs. Imagine what could be possible if those areas were illuminated. And so with all of that said, we are hoping that our conversation today will be as enlightening for you as it was for us. Maria and I are both big fans of Dr. Michael DeManicore. He's one of those unique individuals, in my opinion, that kind of beautifully straddles the divide between the rational and esoteric worlds. He's a longtime practitioner and teacher of yoga whose whose roots are deeply buried in the lineage teachings of TKV Desikachar. Michael's also the founder and the current director of the Yoga Institute in Sydney. It's one of Australia's premier institutions for yoga education. And And since he's someone who's made an impact in the worlds of yoga and mental health, we were both really keen to hear his thoughts on the mental and emotional effects of the last year and the pandemic and the potential role that yoga could play in moving us towards something that feels like healing. I got to tell you, this was definitely one of my favorite conversations, and I know it was one of Maria's favorites too, so let's just get into it. I think you said you listened to a couple of our podcasts. I have, yeah, yeah. We just kind of typically jump on in. And these days, we're, we're often just starting out by asking folks how they're doing, and so yeah, how you doing? Yeah. 
Look, I'm I'm doing very well, actually. Yeah, yeah. just uh, you know, it's been a tough time lately. Uh, mm. I think for many people, and you know, for all sorts of reasons, it has been a difficult time. But I I feel like I'm really coming out of it and feeling really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. excellent. Mm. That Why is, is really that? Good. Is that yeah. it, is that you personally, or your business, or your everything? Uh, yeah. Look, to be honest, everything. Yeah. <laughs> good. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, lots, yeah. Uh, lots been happening, and yeah. things feel like they're they're kind of starting to turn a corner. But as we all know, um, apart from the current times, you just never know what's around the corner. That's true. You know, it does feel like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're down. Are you in Sydney? You're down in Sydney, yeah, aren't I'm you? In Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting because it feels a bit like different parts of Australia have had different experiences, you know, relative to the pandemic. And then obviously Australia's had a completely different pandemic experience to other parts of the world. And I know for us up here, it's been pretty chill, you know, and I wonder like, what has it, how has it been in Sydney for you? How has that experience been? Yeah, look, fluctuating, um, you know, so you've got the local community, the broader community, you know, families and, and personal networks. And I'd say for me personally, you know, we had, as you can guess from the, the background of my video here, um, I live on the northern beaches of Sydney, so I was in the full lockdown over the whole Christmas New Year period. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and, and, you know, that was in one sense, I feel very privileged to be locked down in such a location. I, you know, I yeah. was still able to get down and enjoy the sunrise and enjoy nature and uh, mm and do things. So that was very helpful. However, it really did have a very strong impact on our ability to connect with others outside mm. of our uh, mm. you know, family, household and, and local area. Mm. And, you know, that, that was tough. That really was tough, actually, especially second time uh, round in a full lockdown and over mm. that particular period. But, you know, I, I've, I, I just think we count our blessings and, um, you know, you look at what's happening in different parts around the world, especially and, you know, we're in a very fortunate situation here, despite whatever challenges we face personally and as families and communities. And you know, I think we're, we're, we're very lucky, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. we are. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I had wanted, there's so many questions. I had wanted to um, dive, we're going to, I want to dive into a whole bunch of stuff, but I thought. <laughs> Go for it. Most, and most people who listen to us, you know, mo- I'm guessing a lot of folks who listen to us know know you, but mm-hmm. I, I, I would like to just ask a really simple kind of background question. Yeah. Which is, who were you before yoga? Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's a, in one sense, I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, cause I started yoga practices. I actually started getting into meditation uh, as, as a teenager, you know, probably from the age of about 16 years, 16, 17 years old. And then that was not a yoga based practice. Mm-hmm then I started to get into yoga-based practices, including meditation, um, from the age of about 19. So when you ask me who was I before, you know, most of my life, yoga has been part of my life. Uh, you know, that's now 40 years. Um, wow. You know, I'm six, I turned 60 this year. And yeah. so yoga has been part of my life for 40 years. So to cast back what was my life like before that is kind of a tough question to answer. <laughs> wow. So what, what kind of teenager were you that, that um, meditation attracted you? Was that, um, was that, so my, a, yeah. Yeah. So my upbringing, uh, my my father was Italian mm. and my mother was from an English Irish Catholic background. So both sides of the family, we had a fairly, you know, what I would say, fairly um, typical Catholic upbringing in the 1960s and 70s. 
um, part of a Catholic family, Catholic schools, Catholic um, parish, all of that sort of thing. And there was just a part of that that really drew me in. So my first real exposures to meditative practice were essentially, um, in fact, they weren't really from the mainstream Catholic practice. I started to get interested in some of the more, you know, maybe the mystical um mystical aspects of the Catholic tradition. And so, you know, some of the, some of the prayer, the meditative practices that were part of that. And then that started to just kind of go into offshoots of other forms of, of meditative practice, including, you know, just the benefits of going on youth camps and retreats and things where we just did really nice deep relaxations, which wasn't called yoga, but mm. I, now, I now know it's all part of the whole, the whole sphere. So that's the background that I came from, um, you know, as a, as a youth, as a teenager. And then at the age of 18, I decided to join a Catholic religious order. Some listeners may know of this because I've talked about this uh, with, uh, with Jay Brown before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I joined a Catholic religious order when I was 18 years old. And as part of that deepened, uh, you know, a religious, a spiritual practice in that tradition. But again, a lot of that was exploring, you know, some of the kind of the more mystical, lesser known, you know, practices of meditation, spirituality. Uh, but interestingly enough, I was also first exposed to yoga while I was living there. Right. So that was very unusual at the time. You know, we were part of a, a Catholic monastery, a Catholic religious order, and we had some swamis from the Satchinanda tradition come and teach us yoga practice, largely for stress management, but also mm. to support us in our, in our spiritual practice as well. Yeah, so they kind of interwove there, and the yeah. yoga practice um, really started to, you know, sink in. Yeah. So I, I've pretty much explored that pathway ever since. And to be honest, it then started to raise questions for me about, you know, there's a bigger world out there in the path to healing and, um, you know, self-understanding and connectedness and all of those things that, uh, that are part of the tradition. There's more to that than what I had previously understood within what I would describe with hopefully no offence to anyone within a very, fairly narrow bandwidth in mm. the Catholic tradition. Mm. So then I went beyond that and moved on, so to speak, mm. and, left, and left the religious order and, and have pursued yoga and, uh, and spirituality in that modality ever since. Wow. So as somebody who has had the benefit of such a long, long practice, and one of the things that we like to talk about um, is this idea of our practice kind of evolving And expanding and contracting to support us through whatever it is that we're going through in life. I'd love to hear how how has your practice changed, even just in this, I mean, not necessarily over the years, because that's a lot of time. And I'm sure there's (laughs) been lots of changes, but just in in particular, this this collective experience that we've all been having around the pandemic, you know, last year. And how has your practice shifted in that last in this last year to support you? Um, yeah, look, I, this is not an attempt to rebrand yoga. However, it is certainly a, a, a mindset that I have adopted personally, and I share this with many people, many students and people I guide on the journey, is I almost drop the, the phrase yoga practice now and I refer to self-care practice. Mm. Wow, lovely. Yeah, I love that. And 
So that may include, and it's a daily self-care practice, it's time that is dedicated for that. And it may be, you know, doing an asana practice, a breath-centered asana practice, a meditative practice. It may be use of sound and mantra, there often is. Uh, and it may be a walk on the beach and it may be just some time in nature, um, but some, always some dedicated, it might be jumping in the ocean. It might be, you know, just last week I was in a regional centre in New South, I was down at Wagga Wagga. Mm-hmm. And for me to, to jump into the river, you know, and to connect with nature in all different forms to me is what my practice is now all about. Yeah. Mm. Is that a recent shift or is that, is that the culmination uh, of your years or would it, is that something you just decided was going to be the yeah, best no, way of serving yourself in the last year? Or? No, it's been an evolving thing. Um, certainly not just in the last year. Certainly was yeah. the case for several years prior to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess I've, I've kind of gone beyond what a lot of people, perhaps not yourselves, not your listeners, but a lot of what a lot of people think that yoga is. And I think that yoga has such, you know, in our deeper understanding of the, the teachings and practice of yoga, we've, we've kind of narrowed it down to a very, very small kind of box, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still value everything that I do is very much based in yoga teachings and yoga practice, but from a very broad lens. That's evolved over probably many years. Part of that, I might add, um, in fact, probably very a lot of years. I remember even in my studies with Mr. Desikachar when I was in India, the his whole approach to what yoga is and what yoga practice is, not only is it very much about a personalised practice, mm-hmm. it's also very much based on the concept of whatever works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. You know? Yep. And I, I remember... Um, some of you, yourselves and some of your listeners may know of a story that's been written about, about a very famous story that really shifted my whole perspective. So we're going back, you know, at least 15 years, maybe longer, 20 years, about a student that worked with Mr. Desikachar who came from Switzerland and had been suffering from chronic depression for a very long time and nothing would shift. So cut a long story short, he ended up um, going to Chennai and to study yoga practice because someone said it might help. And Deskachar asked him as part of his practice to, to wander around and take photos of beautiful things. Mm. And that was his That's practice. So much. To shift the way, what we see in the world, you know, to shift our mindset. That's yoga practice. Mm. You, know, you don't need a six. You don't need a six by two non-slip surface to do that. Mm. I, I love that flexibility, and I think I think mm. um, yeah, opening it up, having that essence of yoga. But then, where are the boundaries on yoga? Because there's yeah. so many different practices. Yoga, I guess, as I as I evolve in my own yoga journey, you realize that yoga encompasses so much. And yeah. wherever you want to go, it, it can encompass it and gobble it up and go. Okay. Um, yeah. you know, this, this can be yoga too. Mm-hmm. So do you have like a, a philosophical basis? Are you, are you into the philosophy and do you weave it into your teaching and stuff too? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, like a loaded question. I <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, when you think about my, my background, I, I guess it's not obvious. My mm-hmm. background, particularly in my time uh, in, in the religious order in the Catholic church, you know, I studied a lot of, a lot of theology 
and mm. a lot of spirituality and those areas of inquiry, what, what we might call jnana yoga is, is the, the inquiry of knowledge, mm. um, very much a part of my way of being. Mm. And when I started practising yoga, I didn't know any about that aspect of yoga. I just knew about going to yoga classes and the benefits that we enjoyed from doing a regular practice. And it wasn't until later that I started studying uh, in India with, with Mr. Deskachar that the whole world of the yoga philosophy opened up for me. Mm. And uh, it's a pattern. Uh, it, in fact, of the training programs that we run at the Yoga Institute, um, the teaching the yoga sutras and the yoga philosophy really is, uh, is that, that's what really boils my kettle, you know, oh, from a teaching yeah. point of view. Yeah. Um, and my whole framework as a psychologist and the work that I do in mental health is based in a work that comes from the philosophy, what we might call the psychology, what we, you know, what we might even call the yoga psychology. Uh, that whole framework uh, is very much where I'm coming from when I when I'm working, both for my own personal benefit, as well as working with students and clients. That it's a framework that comes out of the yoga teachings and the yoga philosophy. Mm. Done that. Mm. So, Can you yeah. tell more about that? What the framework you use for mental health? What is the framework you use for your mental health practice? So uh, in psychology, my professional background in psychology, I registered as a specialist counselling psychologist. So I, my training was in counselling psychology rather than clinical psychology, mm -hmm. which comes from a more educated model rather than a diagnostic treatment model. Mm. So it's about educating and supporting people to, to healing and self-understanding. And so when I bring yoga to that psychological, that Western psychological framework, I, I, you know, I look at what is it that the yoga teachings tell us about the nature of the human condition, about the nature of human suffering. Mm. And it's all about the way the mind works. Mm. And of course, as soon as I mention that, we're at risk of the mind being something separate. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're talking about the whole mind, living, breathing, physical, energetic, mind, body, connected organism. But central to that is the operating system of the mind. So I'm not working with the mind. I'm working with the person. Mm. But I'm working with it from a yoga perspective that informs us the role that the mind plays in the nature of the human condition and human suffering. And, of course, the tools that we have available to bring about change. And so that would include things like, you know, pretty basic understanding. I say basic, profound at the same time, of the nature of the kleshas. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that human suffering is based in the, the limitations, the challenges, the distortions, everything that happens as part of the, the natural, even the word natural, I guess, is a bit problematic, but, but just the way, this is, this is where we're at as humans, as a human species. And so I very much rely on or look at things through the lens of the places mm -hmm. and ask myself and invite others to ask themselves in the experience of suffering that presents itself in your life at the moment, let's have a look. I don't necessarily talk about this with clients, by the way, mm -hmm. but I'm using it as my framework and my lens. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it here that that's, there's a pattern of raga, of, of wanting to repeat cycles of even addictions of things that we like that are no longer serving us mm -hmm. 
And how is that creating suffering in our life? And what can we do to, to shift that? Or patterns of dwesha that bring about, you know, avoidance of things because of past experiences of pain. Where's the underlying drivers of abhinivesha, of fear, that, you know, seem to be so dominant in so much of our lives, in our relationships, in our decision-making, in our way of being. And then, of course, it comes back to the, you know, the central issue of our attachment to our own sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And, and my own personal experience and my work with people, you know, that's a big deal, you know, mm-hmm. our attachment to our sense of who we think we are when we're not. And, of course, all of that is based on, you know, we just don't get it because of avidya, you know, and what the Buddhists mm-hmm. refer to as, you know, the veil of ignorance, it's the same thing. You know, we're working with a mind that really is limited and distorted and yet expected to make all of these decisions and operate in relationship and sense of connectedness where we have limited capacity to do so because of the way the mind works. So I have, I have that's practical enough in the framework that I use, you know, in terms of mental health, but it certainly is the foundation of it. It's really oh. practical. I mean, if, yeah. you can, if you can get a hang on your patterns and go, oops, look at that, you know, I'm doing this again. Yeah. Or exactly. then, yeah. I guess that's probably the first step is to realize, hang on, I'm suffering. Yeah. And, and then ask, well, why might I be suffering? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you yeah. can begin to unpick that. So it is very practical. That's, yeah. that's, that's great. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love that so much. I think, you know, I'm right there with you when diving into the philosophy, it like completely opened up a new world for me around what yoga yeah. is, what it actually, and what it can actually be. And with that as an understanding, and, you know, when you look at the yoga sutras, they're like this playbook or handbook for mental health. Um what do you, and then we see our focus or our concentration as yoga teachers, you know, at, in some areas is about getting your alignment right and making sure your feet mm. are sitting in the right mm. direction and whatever it is. I wonder, especially based on where we are now, because I'm thinking about this last year a lot, really, and, and I'm from the US and so there's lots of people there and other parts of the world mm. that are really, really struggling. Everyone's struggling. But what do you think the world really needs from yoga teachers? right now as opposed to what it's gotten from them um look don't hold me to this it's just the first <laughs> thing that popped in, just whatever popped into my head right oh, goody goody sure you know um what we need is a shift of perspective <laughs> a shift in the way that we see what we're doing in the world <laughs> and a shift in our understanding of our place in the you know kind of the ecology of the world and that's both you know human ecology in the way that we're relating to each other as humans as a community um but our whole place in the ecology of the whole world you know we i think what yoga can potentially offer us is first and foremostly to get our heads above the water because if we're sinking it's really hard to make you know to make shifts and changes so you know to, to get our heads above the water so that we can begin first of all so that we can breathe Mm. And then that we can see the world perhaps a little bit differently that provides an opportunity to shift the perspective, a shift in the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see what we're doing in the world and what we're doing to the world. Mm. You know, I think that's an incredible opportunity for us 
as yoga teaches because that's the essence of what yoga really is. Mm. It's a shift out of the habits and patterns of perception. And yoga practice offers us that. And we get some mm. of that by just moving our bodies because, yeah. you know, our bodies hold energy, they hold, they hold emotion, they hold patterns. And if we can move that in certain ways and things start to move, what we don't want is to move things, feel good, and go back to the way we were. That's right. Yeah. You know, we're, it's nice to move yeah. things and feel good. It's better than doing other things for temporary relief. Mm. You know, but it does, yoga practice does give us temporary relief. But ideally what we want is to move and shift things so that we, so that we actually are changing in a sustainable way, our own, our own patterns you know, replacing patterns of perception and patterns of relatedness mm. uh, in, in new ways. Mm. Mm. Yeah. How do we do that in class? You know, how do we use the <laughs> yoga to teach people about themselves rather than just teach them yoga? Do you know what Mm. It's, you, mean, it's, uh, you mean teach the asana? <laughs> well, I guess because you know a lot of the people listening will have done a teacher training, and they and yeah. they offer in a really beautiful way yeah. a, a, an asana, and they've got a little a, an asana class, and they've got a nice little community that comes. Yeah. But I guess uh, at least what I'm hearing from you is kind of an invitation to um, take the opportunity to use that experience of moving and breathing. Yeah. Um, but not just go back to those patterns, you know, how can we use that experience and then bring people back into a way where they're like, oh, I, I realize I hold this pattern, you know, whether it's shrugging your shoulders up around your ears or mm. not breathing or creating that context for people. So they're not yeah. just going in and thinking, yeah. you know, I'm just, I want to come out with stronger arms or yeah. legs, but you yeah. know, they have a, they have a context for what it is they're actually doing on that mat. But that, yeah. but that's a hard one. And I think we're all teacher trainers. So we're look, we look at it a little bit from that level of mm. offering teachers, uh, existing teachers, that little bit more. And I guess that's, yeah. I feel like that's who I'm talking to is if you're an existing teacher and you want to rise above that, you yeah. know, what do you need? How do you do it? <laughs> Michael? Um, <laughs> look, I, I would share three things. Yeah. Awesome. The first one is that... And I know this is part of an ongoing controversial conversation. Mm -hmm. And that is that we invite yoga teachers for further education. And the, con the controversy around that, of course, is the level of basic training that yoga teachers have become accustomed to, in my view, uh, is inadequate. Yeah. And I say that, you know, with the deepest respect for the many people who provide those training. Sure. And in many cases, some of those short training courses can be life-changing for people. So mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not devaluing the experience. People, you know, people practice yoga. They get to the point where it's, they're really starting to feel something. They don't want to go back to the way they were. They want to, go, mm -hmm. they want to move on and go deeper. And so they, you know, do a teacher training course. Mm. And many of those teacher training courses, me. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many people I have spoken to over the years who finished a short teacher training course and have said, wow, that was amazing. It really brought extraordinary benefit, even transformation to my life, but I don't yeah. know much. Mm. Mm. It and is therefore like, go and do another one. Yeah. Yeah. 
So my hope would be, and I've been talking about this for many years, you know, I was president of Yoga Australia, I was involved in, you know, discussions with Yoga Alliance at the board level, you know, I've been involved in this professionally for a very long time. Mm. My hope would be that uh, we recognise that for people to offer what we're talking about here, the yoga teachers to offer what we're talking about here, is I think the base level of training for yoga teachers needs to be increased uh, or to invite yoga teachers to keep learning. Now, having said that, most yoga teachers I know, whether they've done, you know, a 200-hour course or more, most of them want to do more learning anyway because yeah. they're passionate about it. So in one sense, it's a bit superfluous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, most of them want to do that anyway. But it's just that bottom line that, I, that you know, raises so, so much concern for me. Mm-hmm. And to give yoga teachers that opportunity, you know, to really go deeper in their learning journey and that may not be as simple as just do another teacher training course. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be about mentoring. Mm-hmm. It, it might be about really embracing a deeper learning from a very, um, you know, very personal point of view. Mm-hmm. So I think that's yeah. the first thing. It mm-hmm. really is about, you know, further, further training and education for yoga teachers to look at some of these, these dimensions of what yoga is all about because you just can't fit them into the shorter teacher training courses. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So that's one thing. Second thing I think is that uh, that you know being a yoga teacher is more than teaching yoga classes, and we know from the whole yeah. tradition that we come from that it's about working with people, guiding people on their on their personal journey. So when we go to yoga classes and all the wonderful benefits that come from you know being together, the support of the community, the energy that you get from a yoga class that you cannot get by doing yoga by yourself at home. So I'm not, I don't want to devalue yoga classes and yoga studios. They've, they've come, they've evolved to have a very special place in our world today. However, the journey of yoga is more, the, the opportunity there is more than just come to yoga classes and then have the rippling effect on your day-to-day living throughout you know, the rest of your week. It's about really guiding people in the development of their own personal journey in yoga and that is best done in my view my experience is best done one-on-one with people Mm. so really to you know in the teacher training course that we offer at the yoga institute we train people not only have a really good solid foundation in the techniques as well as the philosophy and the teachings but also we train people to design and teach group classes but we also train them to work one-on-one with people Mm -hmm. And that's often confused with yoga therapy. People think that yoga teaching is done in groups and yoga therapy is done one-on-one. Yeah. That's, a, that's a, a very sad misunderstanding. You know, yoga mm-hmm. therapy can be done in groups. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and yoga teaching can be done one-on-one to help yeah. guide people in their deeper journeys. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's an important part. And I think that many yoga teachers who've trained to teach group classes and have never been trained to work one-on-one with people just transfer over and start working one-on-one. And I'm sure they're doing, you know, doing a wonderful job. However, it is a different skill set. It's not not a directly transferable skill set. There's some generic skills that are useful Mm. and some transferable, but there's a whole skill set working one-on-one with people. And even if you look at, um, Say the work of Lucy Kanani and, and her book with Jill Danks, yeah. who you've, you've had on recently. You know, mm-hmm. there's a whole skill set of communication underlying group classes, and there's a different skill set working one on one with people. Mm. Yeah. So I'd really invite yoga teachers to be looking at that. 
as part of the development of their knowledge and skills is what are we offering in in the guiding of people in the deepening of their practice as a personalized journey mm. yeah and 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 maybe you can get that through yoga therapy training these days but of course that's just the way that it's evolved there's there's other ways of doing that mm. yeah yes and i think the third thing is maybe it's really tied up with the second anyway and that is it really is about relationship you know it's about whether it's in group classes or working one on one with people it really is about developing that um that mutual exchange that mutual respect where the other teachers are not necessarily presenting themselves as experts <laughs> i think that would be a sad story yeah. and unfortunate one however it is about really developing that connection that can help guide people in a way that is uh, self-empowering and self-healing in their own journeys. Does that Dang. answer your question there, Maria? <laughs> it does. I'm not sure if it totally operationalized how to do it, but it, it certainly um, put down a roadmap. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That, that, I so agree with all of that. I, you know, that's something, cause something that came up for me uh, as you were talking about that is this, this what feels to me like a little bit of a complication of the way that yoga has become a career for yeah. people. Yeah. And because for me in, in studying and teaching Ayurveda and, and teaching that hand in hand with yoga, it's mm -hmm. very much about it, as you said at the very end there, empowering the, the student to um, to begin to dive into do some of these internal inquiries and to be mm. and to begin to ha maybe even have some of those inquiries start with sensations in the body and then kind of yeah. follow yeah. those pathways out into what that could mean about other choices that they're making in their lives but what we're yeah, seeing indeed. and what we have seen is that students get attached to a teacher and I feel mm. like this is part of human nature too. Mm. We don't want to believe our in, inner voices. We want somebody to tell yeah. us what we should be doing. Yeah. And teachers in some ways have an interest in maintaining that, <laughs> in kind of yeah. keeping that little gaggle of folks, you know, yeah. kind of reliant on them. And I kind of, I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are about that dynamic and, 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 and how that's being kind of proliferated in the yoga world. Um, yeah, look, it is a really important one. And I think that there is, to some extent, a bit of a conflict of interest for yoga teachers about, you know, their business model and, and, and retaining students, whether it's retaining class attendance or working one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that, you know, there's, you know, a real humility that comes in for the yoga teachers, the opportunity for humility to say, I can support this particular student or this group of students for a period of time on their journey. Mm. and things will change. If things don't change, then you, we've got to ask the question, what are we doing here? Of course, see, of course things are changing, yeah. and they may be changing for all sorts of different reasons, and they may be changing, uh, hopefully changing in the desired direction, so by, you know, by good management rather than by chance. Mm. So as things change, the, it, it may get to the point, and I've, you know, I've, this has happened with me personally in my own journey, but also with many of my students that we get to the point where I've supported you pretty much as much as I can for this part of the journey. 
and it's time to, you know, express gratitude and, and perhaps move on, you know, mm. and find someone else in that journey. Uh, I, I remember my, my kind of first encounter with Mr. Desikachar around this. Yeah. And when I first asked him, would he accept me as a student? He said, no. <laughs> he said, because he said, it's really important. He knew my background. He knew where I was at. He knew, you know, it wasn't a random question. He, you know, he kind of knew where I was coming from and where I was looking for. And he said, he thought it was really important that I had someone uh, within Australia, someone mm. who maybe had more of a cultural context. And I was a little bit cheeky. And I said to him, have you got any suggestions? And he said, look, come to India. I'll help you if I can. Right. So that's what I did. And then we got to the point where, um, you know, things changed and I got extraordinary benefit from that journey and things changed. And I think we do need to be open to that as yoga teachers to invite people to move on or maybe even part of their journey. Maybe there's something that they want to explore. There's plenty of times where, where someone has wanted to explore something in their journey that I felt was like beyond my scope of practice, beyond my knowledge and skill set. Mm. But I knew someone else who was really good in that area who could be a better support. So I kind of went off on a bit of a detour and spent some time with another teacher and then came back to me back on the main, you know, those kinds of yeah. things can happen. Yeah. 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 I feel like that kind of context should be set as part of our teacher trainings too. You yeah. know, there's always like a business of yoga section, you know, yeah, there's yeah. something that gives students or sorry, yoga teachers an, an understanding of the role that they're really playing here yeah. you know, in people's lives, as opposed to, you know, just telling people where to put their hands and feet and, and yeah, all the rest of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think, I think um, we, so many people go to those short course teacher training and there's a little bit on philosophy and a little bit on business and a little bit, mm. and, and as they are, I've also taught on lots of them and I have, they do good in the world. I agree with you, mm, but me too. Um, it's such a physical focus. Yeah. And some people come away with, um, with, you know, seeing the use of breath, but it's rarely, well, it depends who's teacher training, but if, in that Desikachar style of, of letting the breath be just about everything in the practice, whether mm, it's in mm. asana, pranayama, and then take you into meditation. I found, yeah. I found that really opened the world up. Did you, did you feel like Desikachar's teachings around the breath changed <laughs> you? Oh, yeah, big time. Um, I, you know, I'd been practicing. In fact, I'd been teaching yoga for, for quite a number of years before I came across it, across the teachers uh, from the KYM. My first exposure to this was one of the teachers from the KYM who came to Australia and did a workshop. And I remember in that workshop so clearly thinking, wow, this is amazing, but it's a pity that they've got the breath wrong. Oh. Because everything else I'd been taught about breathing in yoga practice was different to what I was being supposed to. So I thought, okay, I'll go along for the ride. And then I started to realize, oh my God, they haven't got the breath wrong at all. It is so profound in the way this works that I'd had it wrong all of those years. Mm. And you know, it transformed everything, you know, it transformed everything in the way yoga practice is. And that includes not only the way that we, um, we breathe as we move in sayanasana practice and how that, as you said, Maria, how it leads into a pranayama practice, because the breathing that we do in, in, in an asana practice 
ought to be then lead us into a very, very natural transition into the development of pranayama practice. And that ought to lead us into a very natural transition into what's happening with the breath in meditation and where that takes us in meditation. Mm. And then, of course, a consciousness of how we're breathing moment to moment throughout the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a bit of a geek in the early years because I was a slow learner. You know, I would have, you know, alarms go off on back in the day when you, when you had an hourly beeper on a digital watch, you know, so that every hour my beeper would go off and I'd just check in with my breathing. Mm-hmm. And so as often as possible. So it doesn't need to be part of that dedicated time of how breath is part of the practice. Breath, be, breath awareness becomes part of life. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that for me has changed everything. Oh, yeah. I just, I wish there were more pranayama being taught in yoga classes. It's yeah. such a beautiful and it's such a powerful and subtle practice. And it's funny because most of the folks that I hear sp- speaking about pranayama these days um, are older people, not, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just, it's one of these things by older, I just mean, you know, folks who've had some time to dive mm. into who kind of maybe moved through their asana stage or whatever. And they've, they've actually dived into some of these real practices and beginning to understand yeah. the, the, the power of feeling and moving and understanding prana yeah. and what that does to just how you can be in the world. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I would love really to powerful. see more of that in practice or in not in, well in practice, but also in class because it feels yeah. like there's just not enough. I agree. And, and it, it kind of comes back to something um, that you were saying earlier. And I know that this is a really big discussion that's happening, uh, has been happening for a long time. Yeah. And that is, I think part of the problem is our business model. Mm-hmm. And many senior teachers have said to me, they've shared their passion for teaching pranayama and their numbers drop. Yeah. It's as simple as that for many people, yeah. many teachers that seems to be a very real issue where we've created a certain kind of perception and a business perception about what yoga is Mm. and a business model about how yoga sustains our work as yoga teachers that once we start to move into that space, numbers drop off. So therefore it's difficult to pay the rent. Mm. So we go, okay, we better get back to what people think they're looking for uh, and teach for predominantly a physically based practice. And I think that's unfortunate and we just need to reshift, re- rethink it, you know, and I think that maybe it does take, you know, a bit of a dip in our, in our revenue for a while, but I have no doubt whatsoever, no doubt about this. Hmm. I think our understanding and our delivery of physical based practices, whether it's yoga or, or other things is really well understood in our world today. And the development of, meditative practices is also becoming more and more understood, particularly through mindfulness and, and other approaches. Mm-hmm. What is, and to me, this is just the missing gap. It's, just, it's like the Grand Canyon. It is huge. In between is the world of the breath. Mm. And I think it's an extraordinary opportunity for us to really move into that by diving into it ourselves in our own journey, mm. um, whether it's part of our teacher training course or not. I, you know, I do believe that it's important to get guidance on it. I don't think it's kind of something we want to be inventing for ourselves whilst being guided by our own experience and our mm. own inner teacher to then be able to offer that to others because I have no doubt whatsoever that there's an extraordinary opportunity. And even if I was to, to put it in the context of business opportunity, 
I think it's there, ready and waiting to happen, but we just seem to be shy or reluctant or hesitant to, to take that out there as an offering. Mm. You know, would people pay to learn how to breathe? Mm. You know, I, yeah. I think that once you start to, to feel the benefits of it, you go, wow, there's something in this. Well, there I was want that, that recent book by James Nestor, that breath book. Is it mm. breath or breathe? Yeah. And that, breath, I mean, yeah. maybe promoted some of the popularity of it, but mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it feels like, you know, kind of coming back to the pandemic, it feels like there's been a shift in people's thinking about the value and the importance of self care. Yeah. And, you know, people yeah. are reaching out for, you know, they're recognizing they kind of have to take care of themselves if they want to stay out of the doctor's office or whatever it is. Mm. And so I wonder if this is an opportunity for the yoga world to, you know, to kind of shift, shift our focus, even just the tiniest mm. bit to, you know, to, to look at yoga as, a, as you were saying at the very, very beginning, to look at our yoga practice um, in a more holistic way, like look at mm. it as a self-care practice and present it as such. And yeah. then that kind of provides to me like a, an avenue to sort of say, right, so we've got the... You know, you've done your physical stuff. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the mind. And mm. I and I wanted to ask, I wanted to get your thoughts about this, what feels to me like a coming, like a second pandemic, like a coming mm. mental health crisis. And I, yeah, I want to get as a mental health person and, you know, as a practitioner, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts about all of it. Before I answer your question, you said something there that I'd like to respond to, which yeah, I think go. is fantastic, and that is a small shift of direction, of mm. focus. You know, when we have a small shift of direction in the here and now, we can end up in the long term in a very, very different place. Yep. So it's not just as simple as a sideways exploration. Mm -hmm. That small shift of focus and shift of direction really takes us on a journey where we can end up in a very, very different horizon. And I think that's worth noting. Mm. Yeah? yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, back, back to your question. Look, in one sense, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about this because it starts to sound very alarmist. I know. You know, challenge. Yeah. I, I look. I think the second wave, in terms of mental health, so we're not just talking about the second wave of the coronavirus. We're talking mm -hmm. about the the um, the the domino effect of that. You know, the whole rippling effect that this is having on mental health in people's lives. Yeah. And I think that we are already starting to see, and will continue to see, a very very significant shift in concerns around mental health in our communities. Mm. And, you know, I think it's going to be time before we start to look at stats on that, obviously, you know, once, the, uh, once we start to see that. And I haven't, haven't seen recent stats. I think it's still too recent to say what are the direct kind of what, what, what are we seeing here in terms of um, the mental health implications of what we've been through in the last 12 months globally. I think they're going to be very, very real. And again, at the risk of sounding alarmist, you know, I think the consequences of that could be far more significant than what we've seen so far with the direct effects of the coronavirus itself. Mm. I, yeah, I mean, part of the, I hear you about being alarmist too. I have felt the effects. It's very mm. interesting. And I'm sure everybody has in their own way. And being here in Australia and having, you know, an experience that's quite different from friends and family who are in the States, um, yeah. 
I've had this tendency towards saying, well, you know, what, well, I've got nothing to cry about here, you know, mm-hmm. there's, you mm-hmm. know, to kind of play it down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also feel like as a yoga practitioner and as a yoga, you know, as a teacher and Ayurveda, all the rest of it, I have a, t- a I've, I've now got a built in tendency towards awareness. So tuning in when I feel like crap and asking myself, mm-hmm. where's this coming from, whatever. And yet it feels like there's so many folks out there, whether they're coming to the, whether they're yoga practitioners or not, that aren't even aware of the, of how mm. all of this stuff is, the impact that's having on the choices yeah. they make every day and the way that they're yeah. interacting with their, with their friends and family members. And I get scared about being alarmist too. I feel like that even mm. saying it's a second wave or a second pandemic, but mm. there's some part of me that wants to ring a bell or throw out yeah. some, throw out a lifeline or do something to just yeah. to even kind of have people open their eyes and, and even yeah. just to touch base with themselves or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, you know, what I'm seeing is some of the drivers behind that. And I think one of them is fear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, kind of a fear based approach to what's happening uh, and what's, you know, what's going to continue. And, and that fear, you know, this is almost like classic behavioral psychology 101. Mm. And that is when the fear is constant, that's difficult. When it's intermittent, that becomes really scary. And, you know, once we start to see, okay, we've got a handle on this now, and then all of a sudden something just randomly comes in left field, which may in fact may not be as, as kind of global scale as the pandemic, but it's just, oh, okay, so here's another interrupter and we just don't know what's going to happen next. And I think that's a very real issue. And I think the other, the other issue, sorry, two other issues. Number one is I think we're going to be dealing with a lot of grief, yeah. an enormous amount of grief. So whether that's grief directly from the loss of loved ones um, or, or loss of, you know, kind of health and well-being, or even loss of, um, you know, lifestyle. Yeah, the way now things used to be. <laughs> the way things used to be. Now, that also, there's a flip side to that. There's an upside <laughs> to that, and that is, okay, sure, there's loss, and there's enormous opportunity, and many people are really embracing the wonderful opportunity that this has kind of forced upon us, and I think yeah. that's, that's fantastic. So it's not all bad in that regard. Sure. But the, the, the third thing, I think, which is actually possible, for me, I think it's actually the biggest one, and that is the disconnection. Mm. how where you know we can talk about self-care practices mm. and and they're vital especially at the moment they are absolutely vital however even in the context of that how we you know we're constantly got these you know whether it's the unfortunate use of the term early on of social distancing mm. and how lonely people have become you know, I'm, I'm sure my mum wouldn't, I don't know that my mum will listen to the program, but, you know, if it gets out, she probably will. But, you know, I really feel for pe- for my mum and for people like that. You know, my mum was admitted to hospital in um, in early December for, for some surgery and then has remained in hospital. In fact, she's still there. We're hoping that she'll be discharged oh, no. on, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, that, that's one story that someone's been hospitalised for such a, a period of time, two and a half months now. But to be restricted to one visitor alone, and not just one at a time, but one designated visitor mm. throughout that whole period. And then we look at what's happening for the elderly mm. and people who are already isolated. 
let alone people who are ordinarily, you know, well supported by their families and social networks. I think the implications of the the disconnection that this is creating is going to be very significant. And so mm -hmm. it is much more about self-care and we do need to go there. I really do believe we need to go there and embrace that. However, it's also about community care and about connection and about, okay, sure, we've opened up Zoom and, you know, people talk much more on Zoom than they ever had before. It's, it's not the same. It is mm -hmm. just not the same. Yeah. You know, being able yeah. to hug each other, you know, to give each other a warm embrace. Mm. And so I think those things are going to be very, very tangible uh, in the foreseeable future. Mm. I like that you connect self-care and community care because I, it, you almost can't separate the one from the other. I think you, you do that self-care in order to be able to go out into the community. I mean, it's the, it's the prerequisite for meeting another human being. Yeah, you met yourself, you've, yeah. you've nourished yourself, and then you go and meet that other human being. And I think um, it's that disconnection from self that's almost the first disconnect. Yeah. And if we didn't have the resources going into COVID, you know, to have that awareness, Shara, like you said, I can feel myself going into something. If, mm. if you just tell yourself some kind of story, if there isn't that awareness to kind of even think about the cliches or to, to think about things with a little bit of distance, you just mm. get swept in this vortex of it's really scary and really lonely and exactly what you're talking about. And then, of course, you're afraid and selfish and, you know, under siege. Yeah. So what are you going to do for the community? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then of course the community. Then we can go even broader than that. And what's our connection uh, with nature and with the planet? Yeah. You know. So, yeah, I think it's very real, and and I think to be more aware of it and to do things differently. That's the key thing, you know. Mm. Like we were saying earlier, you know, we do things to help ourselves feel better, but if we go back to old patterns, that's not really what we're looking for. It's mm. how can we actually embody a whole different way of being with ourselves, with each other, with, with our communities and with our world. Mm. I, I think yoga teachers, I really think yoga teachers are beautifully placed if they, can, if they can survive. Like the, I know a lot of them lost mm -hmm. their jobs mm -hmm. and stuff, but if you yeah. can, you're creating little communities, you know, at yeah. your eight, eight to 12 people rock in and you've got a little community and you, you, you do something very powerful and special. And I, I hope mm. that yoga teachers take on that mantle of responsibility by no means go out of your scope of practice and start giving psychological advice, but, mm -hmm. but know that, you know, maybe educate yourself so that you can take that responsibility mm. and take people, as you said, not to just go back to the status quo, but to go back to something yeah. different. Yeah. I, I love the way you put that memory out. Um, and it reminds me, you know, when we first opened our, our first yoga studio in Sydney, we called ourselves Yoga Sangha mm. before, we re, before we became the Yoga Institute. And yoga studios, and I know many, many yoga studios have been doing this in the past, and, and some of them do it extraordinarily well. How well we're able to do it at the moment because of the situation is hard to know. Um, it kind of links back to what we were saying earlier about what, what can we be offering beyond the yoga class. And mm -hmm. so I mentioned things like our role that we can be guiding people in their journey, the development of their personal practice and that transforms mm -hmm. their lives. But how do we build communities as, as yoga teachers and studios that is not about yoga classes, you know? And I think that there are extraordinary opportunities there to, to really do that and, and foster those relationships and communities. And, and in one sense, it's really no different to the way you know, all sorts of different schools and organisations have you know, just operate naturally. You know, if you think about 
uh, you know, children's primary school or a high school, possibly even tertiary education, how they are so much about community. Yeah. Now, part of the issue might be scale, mm. but, I, but I think, you know, a yoga teacher doing their thing, perhaps on a very, very small scale, maybe even with a small number of students that still builds community is such I a totally agree. Yeah. So what can we do that's different? You know, what can we do that just simply brings people together? That's not necessarily, you know, a designated hour, hour and quarter, hour and a half yoga practice as such, you know, asana practice. Yeah. You know, I think that there's so much that we can do. And I, and I do see that in, in, you know, a number of yoga studios now, uh, or sorry, for, that have been doing it for quite a long time. Yeah. And I think we mustn't lose sight of that, mm. you know? Yeah. In fact, I think that's what yoga studios really um, offer. You know, sometimes yep. it's the yoga practice and the teachings is one thing. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people go to yoga classes for community, not necessarily yes. for the practice of the teachings at all. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, it's funny because I've been thinking a bit about this too, because in many ways I feel like COVID has sped up or has kind of pushed us into the future a bit. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of what we're seeing, it feels like it's, you know, it, if we'd had a, you know, looking glass into the future a year ago or whatever, or, you know, or whatever, if we had a looking glass well into the future, we would see yeah. what we're seeing now, a lot of online classes, et cetera, et cetera. And so mm -hmm. I feel like this, this main, this issue that we're talking about right now is an issue for now, but it's an, it's an issue that is only going to become more and more um, of a, uh, a challenge for people. It's going to become more and more, um, present in people's lives mm, as we yeah. as we move into the future and i wonder and i'm glad we're, we're talking about this because i don't know if there are i i feel that studios have always been about creating community and yeah. because of that yoga teachers have gotten individually have gotten really not so great at it and that's never yeah. been a focus of yoga teacher trainings and i so i wonder mm. do you think yoga teacher trainings should be shifting and changing to um based on what we know now <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 kind of it kind of begs the question um what does it mean to be a yoga teacher yes you know and if yeah. that's then if that's then explored further and then it rolls into the way that we offer teacher training programs mm. i think to me that's one of the fundamental questions what does it mean to us today yeah. to be a yoga teacher yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, we could expand that about the same, the same thing related to being, you know, in the field of yoga therapy. What mm. does it mean to be a yoga therapist? Uh, and I, you know, I believe, again, what I was saying earlier, that it's a misunderstanding that yoga therapy works one on one. You know, a really healing practice of the yoga therapy could be bringing people together in community, especially in the area mm. of mental health. Sure. You know, I think it's uh, it's a really important question, and and you know it's not a new question, mm. and I think there have been really good conversations that have been happening around this, but it just seems to be hard to break out of the model, you know, out of the mold of this is what a yoga teacher is, this is what a yoga teacher does, mm. and that's what's emerged, and it's emerged in a very powerful, um. Um, both beneficial and restrictive way. And part of that is the way that we've developed the business model around what it means to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm. yeah, I would, I'd like to see that change. I feel it yep. feels to me like that's one of those things where, and I could to totally be wrong here. And in, in many ways, I hope I am, 
but it feels to me like that's one of those things that requires a long time to shift. Yeah, <laughs> because it's just a different question. You know, it's based um, on. Yeah, a- look, I, look I, no, I'm not too sure about that. I'll give you an example. Good. Um, Good. You know, you know, teacher train. When we started running teacher training. Um, people are often shocked by this, but when I was running teacher training in the early years, because I've been doing it for a long time, ours yeah. was a 1,000 1, hour, two year teacher training program. I remember before hearing the, about it. Before the emergence of, you know, training in yoga therapy and how all, you know, all that happened. And as part of that, you know, I'm, uh, part of the training was not just about, you know, business principles, but was actually about the vision. And we spent time on every person enrolled in the course to create a vision. So I'm going back more than 10 years now that mm. is part of our training. Mm. And to create a vision, what does it mean to you to be a yoga teacher and how do you want to take it into the world? And people spent time on that and then presented it back to the group. And there was one person in the group who decided that their vision was to open a yoga retreat center. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it wasn't about opening a yoga studio or teaching yoga classes, it was to mm. open a yoga retreat center. And we now have that today at the Billabong Bush Retreat. Yeah. And so, so many, many people go to Billabong in the outer area of Sydney mm. and say, you know, how fantastic is. I say, you know, I train. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and, and, you know, Paul and Tori, who are the founders of that, you know, they acknowledge that that's where it, it, it germinated. That's where yeah. it sprang from. That, that, that vision of offering something different in the world. And I know there yeah. are others doing that, but that's a very yeah. tangible example of, yeah, let's start, as you said earlier, um, ch- ch- change the direction, mm, small, a little, little bit, bit, the perspective, and you end mm. up in a very different horizon. Well, you gave time for that inquiry. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. I have to, I jump, add- I have to oh. jump for a second off and then I'll be right back, okay? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, just keep going. <laughs> no worries. No worries. So it's, it feels to me then, even just conversations like this, even just talking about it and um, inviting the inquiry of how things could shift to better serve us or yeah. support us is a beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really do think it is. Um, and, yeah, look, again, I... I'm already known, I'm kind of already unpopular for saying things like this. So this is nothing new and it just adds to my unpopularity. You know, I'm brave enough to go there on it. Good. And that is that, that we, we continue to offer shorter courses that enrich people's lives. I have no problem with that. In fact, we run a 100-hour course mm-hmm. at the Yoga Institute. Okay, it's, but it's not a teacher training course. Mm-hmm. So there's a different kind of framework of what we're offering as educators and facilitators. So we could be offering, you know, so much more in terms of, um, you know, more beyond the scope of the yoga class, other types of courses and retreats and programs and, and, you know, enrichment and healing and all of those things, just stop calling them teacher training courses Mm. unless they actually meet the, you know, the, um, what, maybe what we would call just simply the foundations that are required to have the knowledge and skills to actually then become, go out there and offer our services as yoga teachers. So I really believe passionately about that. I'm very unpopular in the yoga world for views like this. So I would like to see, just, look, just to put a really pointy end on it, I'd like to see 200-hour um, teacher training courses disappear from the face of the earth. Mm. Not 200-hour courses. 200-hour mm-hmm. courses are wonderful. 
They're wonderful. Yeah. They just are not enough. And of course, many people's experience is, okay, that was great and I need to do more. So you end up doing more training anyway. So why not set a different uh, foundation for that level of, you know, dare I say qualification, but, you know, the knowledge and skills that really deepen people. And so our basic teacher training you probably know is a 500-hour course. Mm -hmm. We don't offer anything less than 500 hours as a teacher training program. Mm. that's our bottom line because we believe this is what what takes people deeper into that and provides the opportunity to think outside the square outside the box mm. do you think michael that um the, the, that we do things online now will make that more accessible because it's it's always seemed like well sure if you're you know rich enough to just take time off your job and and you know attend the teacher training it's expensive and it takes a lot of time Whereas maybe a lot of stuff can be done virtually as well as face-to-face might make it more accessible for people. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing. We've actually been doing part of our teacher training programs. There's, there's been components of online learning, both, um, you know, a self-paced online learning as well mm-hmm. as live online learning. We've been doing that for years. It's been a small component. Yeah. So when COVID hit last year and we were forced into in the shutdown, then we were able to transition our training program for that part of the course. The timing actually from our point of view worked really well. Yeah. Um, you know, to take more of the content online, I think it's a really good option. However, I think at to do things completely online, it, it leaves something that I think um, is uh, is I don't know what, what the right word is there. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, we need to be in the classroom with each other whenever we can. So we're now, our, our training programs now are kind of like a hybrid model. And I think a lot of people are doing this now where mm-hmm. we make it more accessible uh, by doing what we can that lends itself to online learning. Uh, and then in the classroom as part of that to bring people together for that live face-to-face in, in-person interaction. So I think a hybrid model really is the way to go. And you know, uh, and that definitely increases uh, accessibility. Yeah, that's right. If, if if you're lecturing and it's one person talking and everyone receiving, why not do it online or even pre-record yeah. it? Whereas, whereas if there's two-way stuff and someone's applying knowledge and you're getting feedback, then that's a completely yeah. different, a different kettle of fish. But yeah, look to some extent, actually, um, generally, I would agree with what you're saying, there, Maria. Mm. But also. Uh, as well as our teacher training, I, I run um, courses in study of the Urban Sutras. I've been mm-hmm. doing that for years. Mm-hmm. And I've done in the classroom, purely in the classroom, and I've done a hybrid model where I set our laptop, not, a, not very well, actually, I might add. You know, I could improve on this. But we would be in the classroom and people, we would have a, a laptop set up and people would zoom in so you could join the, the classroom by Zoom and then we also run purely by Zoom. But it's much more than just lecturing. Yeah, that's right. It's also very interactive, you know. So we have a whole lot of sharing that happens, a lot of discussion. We actually even do chanting. Mm. Uh, the chanting, you know, that's a little, little bit nowhere near as good as being in the classroom. Mm. However, you know, it can also be very interactive rather than just didactic. Oh, I, I, I agree with that. I think I was thinking um, you can do pre-recorded stuff where it's lecture and then yeah. Zoom does offer wonderful opportunities to develop quite good relationships and class rapport. Yeah. And, and, uh, but you're right. I don't think, I think it's really hard to replace the classroom experience or the, or the, um, the experience of coming together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, do you... I think it will be sad, sad to see um, that the majority, and I think I'm getting a sense that this is actually starting to happen, and I think it's disappointing that there are many, many places now that are just going online and all of their trainings are online, and I think that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Mm, yeah. It's, it feels like a similar shift to the shift from short or longer trainings to shorter trainings, yeah. just in terms yeah, of exactly. what's driving the decision-making on that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, so as we kind of start to wrap things up a little bit, this has mm-hmm. been wonderful, actually. This mm. has been so fantastic. Uh, uh, one question that's coming that's, in, that's there for me is kind of related to the yoga world. And then another is related kind of more specifically to you and your role in it. And the yoga world question is, do you, how do you think this situation that we find ourselves in with the pandemic, how do you mm-hmm. think it's, it's been good for, the, for yoga? Um, and yeah, how do you think it's been good for yoga? Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll leave that and then I'll, and then I'll ask you the other question. Yeah. How's it been good for yoga? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of struggling a little bit with how's it been good for yoga teachers? How's it been good for yoga students? How's it been All good of it. for the, the propagation of the practice and teachings of yoga? Yeah. And I think, I think the obvious is that it's opened up. Uh, opportunities for accessibility by online online interaction yeah so that's that's one thing um and again that has some limitations but it's also opened up you know extraordinary opportunities which is great um i also think it's it's really has either forced or challenged or invited people to rethink their whole sense of self-care you know, and, and to and to maybe move in. I haven't seen numbers on this and, and kind of the work that I'm doing has largely been unaffected by the numbers. So mm-hmm. I just don't really have a sense, to be honest, about, you know, how many people have embraced yoga practice. My, my gut feeling, my hunch is that more people uh, have, have embraced yoga practice and whether mm-hmm. that's done online or at home or, or what they've done because of the restrictions on classes. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I think it has opened up that for people to really think, wow. And even just to pause, and when we pause, we start to notice things that we hadn't noticed previously. Mm. And I'm sure that there are many people who have noticed things and said, oh, I better do something about this. Mm. Whereas when you're on the treadmill in the same way, then you often just don't, don't notice what's going on in your own experience. Mm. And I think that we've, we've that, that opportunity has unfolded for many people. Yeah. Mm. As someone who has had such a long practice and involvement and is still so very deeply involved with yoga, I, mm-hmm. what's your mission? What are you, and, and all the things that we've <laughs> talked about, <laughs> all the places we've talked about where yoga, you know, could go, should go, you know, what is your mission? Because you do seem very um, driven and passionate around this study and practice? Mm. Um, I'll be honest and say I'm less driven than I used to be. Mm -hmm. I'm no less passionate, but I'm less driven. Yeah. Um, A a couple of things, you know, that might be useful to answer that. Number one is as well as running, you know, having established and run the Yoga Institute for such a long time, you know, yourselves and your listeners might be aware, we also have set up what's called the Yoga Foundation. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Yoga Foundation is, uh, is it's a not-for-profit charity that we established. You know, I'm the founder of that as well. 
and we established that more than 10 years, 12 years ago now. And that really was also very much about access, about taking yoga practice, yoga teachings to people who experience hardship and disadvantage. And quite specifically, in the early days, we would offer that to you know, a whole range of different groups and, and populations and communities. Now we're much more focused on mental health. Mm. So, you know, I think, you know, we're seeing lots of yoga teachers doing some really wonderful work in that space, but we set up, you know, a not-for-profit company to be able to offer that, uh, you know, in a sustainable organisational structure to be able to take yoga into settings for people who don't have access that many of us have access to, whether it's online or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm. So I think, you know, that still drives my passion to support that work to take yoga because yoga is readily available now in in many you know parts of our cities and communities there are some places where it's still not readily available but my passion there really is to continue to support the work of the yoga foundation mm. uh, in taking it more and more to to support people in the area of mental health who experience some form of hardship or disadvantage who don't have access and the other area is my role in research, and as again, as many of you would know, some years ago, it's a funny story actually, when we established the Yoga Foundation, it was very important that we not only set up sustainable organisational structures, but that we also did it in such a way that would give us a solid foundation either for grant funding to support those kinds of projects Mm-hmm. And we realised fairly early on that an evidence-based approach is really so. My personal passion and, and our shared passion is one thing, and you know, that, you know, we can be movers and shakers, and we can kind of get things happening in different, you know, different places. Invariably, we are, we hit a wall where someone asks the question, "Where's the evidence?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And whilst we may or may not agree with the necessity of that, it is part of the reality of the world that we live in, especially in the area of healthcare. Mm. Um, for those who are not in the healthcare sector or not, uh, or who have ready access to it, the evidence-based approach for many people is irrelevant. Mm. However, for others, it is very relevant. So we invited uh, a gentleman, uh, Professor Alan Benson, who is the director of the what's now called the National NICM the National Institute of Complementary Medicine, which is part of Western Sydney University, mm. a little bit of guidance around, um, you know, how can we um, build ev- an evidence-based approach into what we're doing and even add to the evidence. And he said what would be really good is he could find to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. So in amongst all the other crazy things that I was doing in the busyness of my life, I did a PhD in this area. And so that's another area that I think is really important to support this work. And and I do want to emphasise, I don't believe that we need the evidence in order to convince people of the benefits of yoga practice if they already have experienced that personally for themselves. However, to to offer yoga as it emerges in our in our world and it's continuing to emerge you know we look at the plateau of the popularity of yoga i'm not talking about popularity here i'm talking about how do we integrate such wonderful teachings and practices into our into our understanding into the fabric of our our uh, maybe our organizations and our society Uh, i think evidence-based approach is really important to that and that's a 
you know, research in this space is, is not easy because you need funding to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not easy, especially in the current environment where so much research investment is getting prioritised in other areas. So I still feel passionate about that research. I'm no, you know, my position now at the university I've, uh, has changed. Um, part of it because of the, you know, the, the, the financial implications for universities, you know, complementary medicine in general, things like yoga practice and research in this area is not a high priority. However, you know, I'm still involved in that research and uh, will continue to support it. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's why you're one of my heroes and I wanted mm. you on because... Because, um, you know, not everyone's qualified to also go that road. So you, it, you know, and, uh, yeah. but it, it does offer a lot. And, and to be able to cite even the research you did and, and to, you know, cite your Delphi study and all of that, that that's, uh, that's useful for yoga teachers to say, well, this stuff works. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I also think that there is, you know, I don't want to go too far down the hole of, of research in yoga, but it's not straightforward. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I think it's it's a very naive question to be asking, well, you know, has, has the benefits been proven? Well, there's no such thing as proof, really. It, it's, you know, that's a very limited scientific framework. But, yeah. you know, where's the evidence to support this? But I also think there's an element to this which is very confronting for yoga teachers at the yoga community. And that is, what if we started to ask research questions that really started to look at, well, what is it that actually works and what doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mechanisms. Think that, yeah. What are the actual underlying mechanisms? And sometimes, you know, it's not really about the style of yoga you teach at all. It's about mm. how you bring the community together. Yes. And, you know, we'll be doing a whole range of different things. We just happen to be doing this. So I think there is an, there, I've certainly come across a certain area, a certain element of resistance to this is, you know, kind of this kind of inquiry. And I think, you know, to have an open mind about it, this is essentially what science is all about. And that is to have an open mind and ask the right questions. Mm. Important. And, and also be realistic in the questions you're asking, because um, if you ask anything about does yoga work, who's teaching the yeah. yoga to whom and, and what have they chosen to teach today? Yeah. With mm-hmm. the weather the way it is and the you know there's it's yeah. really really hard to standardize and you know issue that delivery because if if you taught something and i taught something and charlotte taught something it's going to be there'll be different results and different dynamics exactly and uh, the same thing you know that yeah. that double blind um study is just not going to happen and i think it's accepting Correct, yeah. that too yeah. but the mechanisms yeah. I think sound really interesting. And you're right, community and breath. I think those two. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. I mean, I had questions about all that stuff, which we could, which could take us down a whole nother road, but I think mm-hmm. we, maybe we probably should. Just get you back. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Just wrap mm-hmm. things up. And I'm loving yeah. that you touched on that too, because yeah, just because I think that that's definitely something that's in the space for lots of people, that relationship yeah. between um, you, you know, modern science and yoga. So I'm glad that you really touched on that because I feel yeah. like you are one of the few people who's so well positioned to talk about it. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been brilliant. It really has. Thank you so very much, Michael, for agreeing to jump on here and, and just, you know, have a chat, chit chat with us and, mm-hmm. and for yeah. sharing so, so much of your, um, of your wisdom. It's always so good to me to speak to, folks who's who've had long practices but not just that who've 
reached out into kind of all the different facets of yoga and can kind of bring that together in this really rich um, understanding to share with us. And that you are one of the few people who who has that and who can provide that. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we really just wanted to have this time. And, and you're one of the people who hasn't you. stayed really fixed. If anything, it's made you yeah. more flexible and more open. Yeah. And so I, I find I find that very attractive. I find you know, as a feeling. Yeah. So thanks. And thanks thank for being an Aussie too. <laughs> no, no, look, thank you very much. Could, look, there's just actually one, one thought. Uh, you know, I hope it doesn't come across as an afterthought, but there is one thing that I think is also really important to bring to the conversation. Sure. And that, and that is men. Oh, let's go. <laughs> let's hear you it. Yeah. And, you know, I took a very, I could be, you know, my, uh, my scanning of the, the episodes of your podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of wondering how many men have been online and as part of the show. And then I kind of just look broader than the field. And I think that, you know, we, we do have the vast majority of yoga teachers now and participants in teacher training courses are women, which is fantastic. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, Acharya was famous for having said that the future of yoga in our world will be in the hands of women. And, you know, I think that really does need to be acknowledged and, and the extraordinary gifts and, uh, you know, all, all the stuff that, uh, that women have brought to yoga in the modern world, we've still got a number, of, you know, in our patriarchal society, we still have a number of men, you know, who are kind of considered the world leaders in yoga teaching. And I think that needs to change. Mm. But what I'm really referring to is actually the flip side of that. And that is how do we invite men into these teachings and practice? Yeah. And especially when we look at, health concerns in general, mental health concerns in particular, amongst so many men in our world, you know, this, um, you know, I get very emotional about this. And part of it is, of course, my own journey as a man in this world. Mm. But it's really about tapping into what I think is verging on, you know, it's not verging on, I think we're well and truly in crisis mode. Mm. In terms of the mental health and well-being of men, and how what what do we need to do differently? What do I need to do differently? What do we all need to be doing differently? You know, do we leave women to continue doing the fantastic work that they're doing for women? And of course, there are many women yoga teachers who are doing great work with men as well. But I think I don't have the answers here. I definitely yeah. do not have the answers. But it's certainly, when you go back to your question earlier about what are my passions, that's actually brewing to the surface as a number one passion. And that is what can I be doing differently and how can I be part of a shift that really invites men into these teachings and practices that support, you know, so many deep, deep concerns of loneliness and isolation and mental health and post-traumatic stress, and the list just goes on and on and yeah. on. So that, to me, is actually a really important part of this. And I really do look forward to being kind of part of broader conversations. As I said, at the risk of repeating myself, this is not about just what I can do. I want to embrace this. It's something that I feel passionately about. What can we do together to change this? Wow, that's beautiful because you're yes. you're absolutely right. There, there yeah. it is in it is in crisis, and it's um, and I do think it's the role of men to invite other men in. I think uh, mm -hmm. um, I know women can teach men 
but it's something that has been alienating for men in yoga is all these chicks in tights, you know? So I I think um, feeling like their bodies don't fit and their minds don't fit. And so um, it would be nice to mobilize Mm. even especially young men who I guess you could kind of catch before they get (laughs) too frozen over. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, what I'm seeing amongst young men is in a highly elevated states of crisis, even amongst Mm -hmm. young men. Yeah. So they they may not be they may not be locked into it yet, but they're certainly, you know, they're certainly struggling. Yes. Mm-hmm. And as a mother of a young boy, young man, I've got a 16 year old mm-hmm. son. Thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for bringing that up. Thank you for mm-hmm. highlighting that. Um, that's that l- literally in an instant that has shifted my thinking around a lot of things in mm-hmm. in in part about who we want to talk to on this podcast. Yeah, me too. Who we want to invite in for this conversation because that is so vitally important. Yeah. Nice. Well, to go back to your question, your your question earlier about, you know, kind of what's my passion and where am I going, you know, watch this space because that's, I think that's the direction. I've I've worked with so many beautiful, wonderful women who I hope, you know, I brought benefit to their lives. I know they've enriched my life, no doubt about that, for many, many years. Um, but that's the space, the direction, apart from, you know, the yoga foundation and the research and the trainings that we offer, you know, that's, um, that's a high priority for me now to move in that space and, and to and do that collaboratively. Wow. Well, Fantastic. Well, watch this space indeed. I'm looking Absolutely. forward to, to, uh, to seeing where that goes and maybe even to having you back at some point and talking a little bit more about that as a subject more sure. specifically yeah fantastic yeah wonderful awesome. yeah, thank you michael yeah thank you so much for all the work you're doing in the world and all the work that you will do <laughs> thank you thank yeah. you and to you both uh you know it's really great i'm glad to be part of the uh the program and uh you know these conversations um you know this is so important to be having so thank you very much for your work so did any lights turn on You know, we could have talked with Michael for hours and we are both really looking forward to having another conversation with him in the future. He totally surprised us at the end by bringing up the subject of his desire to support men. And man, were we both happy that he brought that into the space. I got to tell you, as a mother of a teenage son, I love the idea of building a new understanding and way of being in the world by supporting boys and men and giving them a different set of tools for expressing and supporting themselves. You know, I'd love to hear more about, or I'd love to hear more of what Michael's got to say about this and, and what he has to say about how yoga can support that process and that possibility. So stay tuned because we're going to do our best to get him back here in the hot seat for more on that subject. And so before I let you go, I just want to mention that my Ayurveda for yoga teachers learning Sangha kicks off in just two weeks time on April 18th. It's a 10-week course and it's focused on sharing the tools and the principles of Ayurveda for understanding and for engaging with our yoga practice in a deeper and a more nourishing way. Um, I've created this course like this and I'm excited to be presenting it in this long format because I feel like we as teachers and students, we're in need of an open environment to learn ourselves and to learn from each other. A sangha. And so I'd love to have you join us for this beautiful gathering of souls for learning and for illuminating what it means to live like you love yourself. And so I've put a link in the show notes uh, to the website for more information and for booking your spot. So check that out and book your spot soon. Thank you so much for for listening. We have got another conversation that we're really excited to share with you, and that's going to be coming up soon. So 
subscribe to be notified when that one is ready for prime time. Until then, take care of yourself.